You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Werner Vinge is a mathematician, computer scientist, and science fiction writer. His groundbreaking paper, The Coming Technological Singularity, first presented in 1993 to the Vision 21 Symposium sponsored by NASA, introduced the concept of the technological singularity to both scientists and science fiction writers. His new novel is Rainbow's End. Welcome to the program, Werner. Hi, Rick. Let's talk a little bit about Rainbow's End. This is a fascinating novel. It portrays a society on the cusp of the singularity. One of the things you talked about earlier was the threats of facing humanity. And one of the threats we see now is, and what you mentioned in your book, is cheap mass death technology. and Cheap weapons of mass destruction. Yes. Right. Tell us a little bit about that and where that leads us. I think this is something that has bothered everyone. I like to point to science fiction writers. There's there were science fictions about atomic bombs before there were atomic bombs. Actually, there were science fiction about nuclear proliferation before there were atomic bombs. It's intriguing to me that, that they got written and then were more or less forgotten through all the years of the Cold War. But the fundamental idea is that if technology comes along and makes it cheaper and cheaper to make terrible weapons, then eventually you're not dealing with mad dog national regimes. You're dealing with mad dog smaller groups. Eventually you're dealing with anybody who's having a bad hair day. And um, it's very hard to imagine civilization lasting very long if anybody who was having a bad hair day could knock off a continent. That sort of trajectory is one that is very, very scary. Fortunately, we don't see anything on the immediate horizon that gives that sort of power. In the story Rainbow's End, Things haven't gotten that bad, but people and governments are very, very nervous about the possibility, more nervous than we are nowadays, say, about nuclear terrorism. You have come up with a concept for Rainbow's End that I found really fascinating. I'd like you to discuss what you call the minefield made in heaven. Could you tell us a little bit about that? The minefield made in heaven notion comes from one possible model for how the tremendous potential of bioscience to medicine, one model for how that might actually impact us. It might be that, and I certainly hope it is true, that we get all sorts of direct application miracles of medicine. We've had plenty of reasons to believe they're on the way. Anybody who actually tracks the sorts of wonderful things that are possible now in terms of understanding how the how cells work inside themselves and how they work with one another and how they respond to threats the surprise has been that we haven't had a penicillin-sized miracle of some sort every year for the last five years. I think eventually such will happen, but it is possible that while there may be some overarching cures of particular things, mitochondrial diseases of certain sorts, say, that much more often we may see cures that dramatically cure or ameliorate some particular disease, in fact, even that's too shotgun of a way to say it, that dramatically cure or ameliorate some particular variety of the disease. So, for instance, it might be that some particular forms of osteoporosis can just be eliminated easily. And if you're the sort of person who has that particular type of osteoporosis, then life is good. 
Similarly, for Alzheimer's, there might be some forms of Alzheimer's that can be dramatically cured and others can't. So that in the era of my novel Rainbow's End, there are people who have had the good luck to be standing, to have chosen all the right fatal diseases, namely the ones that medicine could cure. And one of the uh, physical therapists in the story describes this situation as a minefield made in heaven. And our hero has various forms of bad luck, but in general, he chose just the right diseases. And for him, it's sort of like a utopian world, a 75-year-old guy who is suddenly cured of almost everything that, that ills him, even issues of physical appearance in large part. Well, at the same time, other people who might have diseases that looked somewhat similar are still sort of creaking along, marginally helped because, say, their Parkinson's was cured, but there's something else has not been cured. I have one tragic case in the story of a lady who hits all the right things and then hits a dementia disease. The heavenly minefield got her through to the point where she found something terrible that she would never have seen otherwise. In science fiction, I think in most people, when they thought about the possibility that medicine could give us prolongevity, 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, usually we've thought about it in terms of, at least in science fiction, as what would it be like to be the last generation before the big cure came on? It may turn out that, in fact, it's not the last generation and then suddenly there are cures. It may be that we go through a long period of time where, yeah, we can cure that. No, we can't cure that. Sorry. And so the weight of mortality gets distributed across decades of time in a way where now we only see this as tragedies that occasionally strike a young person who has a, some sort of disease that just can't be, can't be cured, that we may see this uh, very much more diffuse and broad and overall, the effect is, is very striking, and it turns upside down a lot of the problems with Social Security and economic issues such as that. One of the notions that you play with quite a bit in Rainbows and is the idea of identity. You have multiple people merging into one public identity. You have a sort of true name scenario. You have the Miri gang. Tell us a little bit about how you see identity itself changing as a result of our ability to communicate so easily? Science fiction for the last 20 years or so has been much concerned with identity, partly because it's even a marginally fantastic story about computers can ring in magical things like that and question issues of identity. In Rainbow's End, I actually play these issues very conservatively. There's almost nothing in Rainbow's End that uh, is magically beyond what uh, we can imagine right now. Even so, if you have good enough communications, right now, for instance, when you see people walking around, depending on how you feel about these things, you're annoyed by all these people with talking in their cell phones, or even people with their Wi-Fi earplugs uh, just sort of talking to the empty air. Imagine that those devices become even more unobtrusive to the point where a person who looks perfectly ordinary, in fact, is more online than somebody, than some geek sitting in front of a very powerful uh, desktop computer that's hooked up to the internet. That means if you ask them something, they may just get a faraway look. They're looking in their eyeglasses where the display is, or their contact lenses where the display is, and Googling up the answer. Such people then are, in a way, pretty competent in, in, in a strange sort of a way. And in fact, they could also be transmitting everything that they see and hear 
to Confederates, or let's not be conspiratorial about this, colleagues who are helping them out, who may be experts in their own fields. So you could imagine a situation, say, where you had a, a shut-in, a person who medically could not get around, and a person who was able-bodied but was not an expert on Middle European culture, say. The two of those would make a grand tour group of, say, Central Europe because the person who was mobile would be the one who was physically present. The other person would be hovering invisibly around them. And when I say invisibly around them, that's, that's magical metaphor. In fact, it's, it's not much different than somebody with a Wi-Fi cell phone now, except there's also television hooked up so that the person who is the shut-in is intimately participating in what is going on. On a larger scale, you could imagine whole clubs or advisory panels that get together and coordinate something that's going on. Some of the climax action in the story, for instance, shows what a Marine Corps expeditionary team, it's really about the size of a platoon, but it is backed up by thousands and thousands of specialists. And they are backed up by looking through all the, the networked ubiquitous computing that is embedded in the structure of the real world. So the overall effect is sort of a person multiplier. The downside of that is that you look at all the bad things that we have now with networks, the terms a uh, zombie PC or botnet, those are terms you can find on the net now for the ways that individual PCs can be perverted. In this world of, of wearable computers and a ubiquitous co uh, communication of Rainbow's End, you could actually find yourself cooperating with the wrong person, and that person might actually have subverted your wearable computer and your communications to the point where you end up that you're working for the bad guys, only you don't quite realize that. And people like that, it might be reasonable to call them zombies, although it would still be slang. There's nothing, nothing magical about it. So this sort of mix of belief circles and entertainment, entertainment now leaking out into the real world, cyberspace leaking out into the real world, is something that a path we're very much headed along, even though by itself it is intelligible. It's not really uh, like the technological singularity. Tell us a little bit about the new economy that you talk about. You, One of your characters says there is always an angle and that search and analysis you see as the heart of the new economy. One thing I think that we're seeing now and we've seen for the last five years is that when you get the sort of connectivity that we have in the world now and the computation that backs it up, educated, creative people, enthusiastic people, free people who also have this sort of power to communicate and to collaborate with one another, there are paths to invention and angles on getting, and I don't mean angles in a negative way, I mean ways of of creating wealth that just did not exist before. In, in fact, if a person just casually reads, say, the ways that one can use Google or Yahoo in advertising and in providing products, if you read very much of that, and if you haven't before, you will find that there's an enormous number of buzzwords, and in some cases the buzzwords are a way of making money that really did not occur to people until the technology was there. For instance, many of us who use the net are aware of data dredging, the notion of using the net to massively observe, say, what an economic competitor is doing. 
and drawing conclusions from that and using that to alter one's strategy. The flip side of that is if somebody is data dredging you, this is obviously a co-evolutionary struggle, if somebody is, is data dredging you and you see that, then you know a lot about what they are interested in. And so just the act of data dredging can put a person at an economic disadvantage at the same time it gives them an economic advantage. So there are things going on here that are sort of paths of cause and effect that we don't see until they're there. For the most part, they have been enormously constructive. You know, exceptions, <laughs> exceptions abound, but the overall lowering of thresholds, say, to entering a business, to pursuing a business, to letting other people know that you have the business, th those things are the sorts of sorts of constructive things that can can multiply gross national products in the same way that the Industrial Revolution did, but at a much, much higher level. I could imagine, for instance, and again, this is a sort of an analogy, that in such an era, your average citizen can have the sort of wealth that previously we associated with nation states. And in fact, that's sort of the thing that, that the Industrial Revolution did for individuals. Individuals of the 20th century, in a sense, often had as much wealth as the heads of nation states had in medieval times. So these are very interesting and risky times, but they also are times of immense promise. One of the things that you talk about quite powerfully in this book is what can happen to the family in the future. You offer a fascinating portrait of aging men, your main character, Robert Goo, but also of children outstripping their parents. Tell us a little bit about what you see as happening with the family. I think there are several sorts of inversions of that that can happen. One of the most surprising ones, if medicine comes along, is that all the worrying about a Social Security bankruptcy may be backwards. Imagine a person who is, imagine, say, that many people who are 80 years old had the get-up-and-go that they had when they were 50. If that came to pass, even if it didn't happen to everybody, but if many people in their 80s had that sort of medical improvement, well, they already have an enormous amount of wealth. If they had the get-up-and-go of a 50-year-old, they would run the country. It would be a type of revolution, although it wouldn't require the change in any laws. Now, there'd still be poor old people and sick old people, but the fact that the old people would dominate the economy could be very frustrating to people in their 40s. At the same time, for younger people, the youngest people, they're the ones that are the most plastic and able to adapt to the interfaces that are coming along. And you can, of course, we have plenty of symptoms of that right now when you just look at how kids adapt to certain sorts of games and to the instant messaging and to, and to reading things on PDAs and to using cell phones. That trend, in my opinion, has not ended at all. And so you could imagine a situation where you have the people in their 20s and 30s and 40s sandwiched in the middle between people of varying capabilities in their 80s, some of, some of them very capable and flexible, and then also the majority of kids in their teens who actually can use the new tools so effectively that they are an economic power. And it might be taken as a joke, but at various places in Rainbow's End, the teenagers have their own uneasiness. I think at one point, one of them is looking speculatively across the schoolyard and thinking to herself, you don't want to mess with third graders. 
One of the things that you talk about quite uh, powerfully as well is security in a future. In your future, we've really completely traded our privacy for security. And you have a, a group that calls itself paradoxically the Friends of Privacy, which in a sense really isn't. And we're <laughs> all under we're all under the aegis of something you call the SHE, the Secure Hardware Environment. Tell us a little bit about how you balance those things. And do you see this happening? Do you see this as a good thing? Should we just trade all, away all our privacy and in the hopes that people won't uh, hack our computers? First of all, Rainbow's End is definitely not a utopia. There are things about Rainbow's End that are, to me, distressing and discouraging. I would like to think that when a person reads it, they can kind of see how all of these things work together in a way that leaves possibilities for enormously good things to happen. But it is a, well, our era is a dangerous era. Their era is a, in Rainbow's End is a dangerous era. There are trends that have, have become accentuated that in principle, are extremely destructive of human freedom. And those, those abound in the story. Uh, the secure hardware environment is an example. I talked earlier about science fiction being like humanity dreams. It's the dream of what happens if they really can use all that hardware and put it in service to the government. So the secure hardware environment is the notion that every one of these ubiquitous computer chips has a certain amount of government-mandated property on it that is invisibly enforcing regulations. I think this is a trend that is very widespread, and it's not just the government. There, almost every faction society, even ones that don't really recognize it, has sort of a stake in going for things like this. As such, even though it's not a conspiracy, when you look at digital rights management, then when you look at total information awareness, and then you look at, in general, wanting to control crime and, of course, terrorism, and the desire just to make there be less onerous government bureaucracy, all of these things lead to the possibility of trying to offload the stuff onto logic that runs everywhere and can, can keep people from breaking the law. I think that this is a trend that I see. I suspect that it would, for many reasons, it would break apart. However, breaking apart doesn't mean that it wouldn't be attempted. And you can have laws that do terrible things, and once they get in place, even though they are terribly destructive, they are continued to be pushed. So the bad things about the secure hardware environment are pushed very strong in the society, and they're opposed very strong. There are underground semiconductor fabrication areas where people are trying to make their own chips that do not subscribe to the SHE. And so there's just a whole new layer of things that are like the drug wars now, but people who are simply trying to keep control of their automation. One of the notions that I found most interesting is the idea of artificial intelligence gods. We've always seen artificial intelligence gods as being something like the, the John Gilgood type or the Colossus Forbin project type big, powerful, wanting to control everything. But what I think you do in Rainbow Sand that's just fascinating is you take, give us an artificial intelligence god that's like the trickster. Tell us a little bit about that. Ah, he's not admitted to be, he's speculated that it's, that it's not a human. It's, uh, it's still speculation at the end of the story. There is a character called the Mr. Rabbit 
who actually models most of his behavior after the tricksters of folklore. As the story goes along, actually, the character appears to become more powerful. And in fact, that is my attitude, that actually at the beginning of the story, he's approximately the amount of threat that the security people think. But as the story goes along, he actually uh, actually gets better. And that surprises the, the creature, perhaps, or the person, or whoever it is, as much as any. It is possible, you know, to be revealed, hopefully, in a sequel, that Mr. Rabbit is an early post-human. It's also possible that it is just an extremely well-advised individual or group of individuals. We never actually see such a person. Your comment in raising the question I thought was very interesting in the notion of what a superhuman, how we imagine a superhuman. And the Forbin Project, as, as a relatively negative view, generally just the falling back on the notion of some sort of god in Roman uh, or Greek mythology, those are also views that we have. There are other sorts of views that I think are very intriguing. One is just the notion of the ensemble mind of the human race, which people have talked about and excused tyranny with for a couple centuries. But in fact, something like that might really happen. It might be really how the singularity finally manifests itself. And my guess is it would not be any more, it would be a whole lot less destructive than uh, dictators who have espoused themselves as leading some sort of the state as a group creature. Probably they'd be even more, such a, a group mind would be even less destructive than the average Western democracy, mainly because they value the, the people so much. There are other models. I think one of, the, one of the cutest models, you see it occasionally in fiction, is the notion of what would happen if you had something that was superhuman and it really liked you or it was constrained that it, you know, it really wanted to help you out. And I don't mean that in some way that leads off into some terrible, terrible gotcha, some sort of monkey's paw, terrible trap. But it is interesting, the notion that if you had somebody who really, really liked you and was your absolute slave in that sense, but was a thousand or a million times more competent than you were, they could probably satisfy your wildest dream with one percent or one tenth percent of their attention. And then they could go off and do their own thing. And there have been a few science fiction stories that have actually looked at things that way. And it's been a very intriguing notion, although sometimes I wonder if such a creature ran up against a client who, whose wish was that they wanted to be as smart as, as the uh, superhuman, whether that would be an easy wish to grant. What this brings about is, to a certain extent, a lot of this harks back to some of the old fantasy ideas of genies and wishes. Yes. Yeah. And we're talking, you know, this is getting over into fiction. I'm, I am not making any, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm not making these as, as, as serious uh, scenarios, but the power of science fiction is, to, is in, in part to think about things like that. Let's talk a little bit about art in the future. You mentioned this earlier, and I think you have some fascinating ideas of art. Tell us a little bit about your idea of belief circles and you have the scoochies. I have to ask you, did you have a, a time in your life, maybe about five, six, eight years ago, when at some point you were found yourself watching the Pokemon every day? No. <laughs> uh, I am much too old for that. Or uh, I mean, to have been around during that era. But as a child, I, as a child, I was very much into making up, um, you know, fantasy type situations. 
And so to that extent, uh, it, it fits. The, uh, the Scoochie Moot stuff in the story is an example of a very scattered and eclectic set of childish or dramatic beliefs that were apparently assembled worldwide. You mentioned the term belief circles. In Rainbow's End, the notion is that the whole entertainment industry has come to the realization that there's a lot of money to be made in entertainment, but entertainment itself has gotten to be so big and so ubiquitous that it's actually outside there in the real world. It's not in the television screens. And at that level of ubiquity, it really needs to be supported by a much larger range of artists than you know just the guys, say, that are sitting in Hollywood or that are sitting near studios. And so the trends that we see now with fans and fan art and stuff has been, in this era, co-opted, or you could put it the other way, the fans have co-opted the uh, serious uh, commercial producers into sort of mixed efforts. And belief circles are groups of people who choose to agree on some aspect of reality. So, for instance, pick some very, very popular movie venue of our era. You could imagine a belief circle associated with it, and that would be simply people who, they know it's not the truth, but they go out and they have a great time sort of repainting the world in their shared communications and visualization efforts with their view. And it doesn't get very much in anybody else's way because it exists solely as overlays in their internal imagery. So these belief circles are sort of a, a, a playful manifestation of what I was talking about, say, with the Marines, where you have large groups of people that are doing creative things, and different art projects have their own belief circles. And it's a form of art where it is turned inside out, the art that we know now. It is actually verging onto something that is not like art that has existed in the past. Or if it has existed in the past, the belief circles make it so extensive and ubiquitous that it's qualitatively a new thing. Another thing you create is the the shredder. Tell us a little bit about <laughs> this, the shredder and the library own project. Is that how you would say it? Right, right. The uh, shredder and the library own project was. Uh, I said this wasn't a utopia, and in particular in this story, various people for reasons that are partly economic, but more likely just sort of publicity. At one point, various characters in the story speculate how things got so extreme. Issues about copyright law have been resolved in this era of the story, not necessarily in ways that you or I would approve of, but they have been, they have been settled. And they are settled, and they're settled in the software domain. And apparently, and to me this is one of the less realistic things about the story, the various digitization efforts of our time have not completed. So there's actually a lot of stuff in, in the libraries that is still not digitized. And in a way, that means that pre-21st century library materials are inaccessible in the sense that people are too... The other stuff, the post-20th century stuff, is so easy to get at that that's where people do most of their research. So with a tip of the hat to Ray Bradbury in Fahrenheit 451... I um, consider what would be really radical and violent digitization. None of this slow and tedious, soft little robot hands turning the pages of books and scanning the pages one after another. In the story, there is a, a much more radical and destructive approach that's based very, very, very remotely 
on shotgun sequencing of the human genome or biological genomes. And that is the notion you just throw the books into a tree shredder and blow and blow the resulting shreds, shredda, out the back down a tunnel where there are thousands and thousands of little cameras. And then that, that photographs everything. And then you have big computer programs that go through and look at all the pictures and match the shredded edges. And various, various objections to this besides the objection that it's monstrous. One objection is that you'd lose material and the pro-shredder person that that's brought up to says, oh no, we'll just shred another library and you know cross-check and everything will be cool. And furthermore, this techno-destructive geek goes on and brags how, in fact, we're being kind to the libraries because we're not going to throw the shredder away. We're going to put it in a non-oxidizing nitrogen atmosphere and store it in a cool place and so that archaeologists and researchers of the future, if they ever have any doubts about it, they can go back and recapitulate the experiment. In fact, although I do think this is monstrous, it was meant as an extreme. In fact, actually, it has resonances with the way that we have typically looked at archaeological investigations in the past. Every generation has complained about the previous generation's abuse of the archaeological record when now we, in our enlightened presence, know enough not to use dynamite to excavate. Instead, we will use, and then whatever, whatever the current technology is for doing archaeological research. And of course, the next generation looks back at these chowder heads who did something that was very destructive in their archaeological dig-ups uh, compared to what that next generation can do. So in a way, the trend with the uh, book shredders in this book, Rainbow's End, is sort of an echo of that. Uh, this morning I was reading one fan description who said, this was really a cool idea, and he hoped that somebody would do it, and the first book they would try it out on would be my book. And Is that what you'd actually, hope? Uh, not exactly. However, <laughs> if you notice in the book, the opponents of the book shredding project, they get a certain amount of grim humor out of the fact that the first books that get shredded were the science fiction books in the library. You know, it serves them right, those degenerate futurists. I'd like to talk to you, too, about this great acronym tech for technology, YGBM. Tell us about YGBM technology, and this is leading towards something that isn't quite resolved in this book, but I... From what I understand, it sounds like you've got a sequel in the works, and I'm really happy about that. Uh, yeah, I hope to, hope to have a sequel. YGBM is a type of weapon, and obviously as a writer uh, from the 20th century selecting such a name, it sort of sounds like a weapon because you know we have ICBMs and, and ABMs and things like that. But YGBM is actually a, not really a weapon of mass destruction. YGBM stands for you got to believe me. you got to believe me. In other words, it's an effective technology for making other people believe or do whatever you want them to do. I even raised the possibility that this could be done remotely. Science fiction over the years has had things like that on and off. I think the particular gimmick I have for doing it in this story is kind of intriguing in that it's a combination of biological warfare and the use of communications to trigger responses. Right now, certain diseases can be triggered by certain visual effects. And that's the notion here, that the possibility that certain behaviors can be triggered by visual effects that then can be delivered over the net or via broadcast television. So that's intended to be an end of the world, very, very bad thing. If you want to have what is the terrible nightmare that, say, the people are trying to avoid in the story, that is one of the big ones. The other stuff we've been talking about here, 
has been talking about social trends that I think can be very upsetting, but this YGBM has sort of an abrupt in-your-face thing that is sort of on a par with uh, nuclear terrorism. And that's what uh, uh, various characters in the story are out to diffuse or prevent the development of that technology. You talk about it as the end of history, and in a sense it, it becomes like the singularity then, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that Rainbow's End could be considered to be a story that's happening right at the edge or, or during it, but, but sort of unbeknownst to the players. There are things about it that I wrote it in the near future, and I tried to write it in such a way that there's big hunks of it that sort of, you know, you're kind of reading along, yeah, well, this is, this is a story about sort of like our present, and then there are things that just get stranger and stranger and stranger. And I think that that's something that we may see in fiction. There's a, a British science fiction writer, Charles Strauss, who did an interview last year where we made the, he was talking about the singularity. I think he felt there was a certain unknowability about it, but he said it's going to be kind of cool to watch fiction during the next 20 years because as those years pass, if I say parenthetically, if we're into a soft takeoff, as those years pass, we as, we as a technological people will begin to understand more and more about what the possibilities are and what the changes are like. And he says science fiction may be at the head of that. And so we're doing the best we can right now, but, uh, but coming back 10 or 15 years from now and looking at science fiction that gets written then would be a very intriguing uh, proposition. And I think there are things about science fiction that's being written right now, including Rainbow's End, that if you showed it to an avid science fiction writer in 1980 or even worse in 1950, they would at least be bemused. Tell us a little bit about science fiction as a literature of ideas, as a literary form. It's different because it doesn't. it's more than just the language, isn't it? Yes. I think that in principle, science fiction has all the possibilities of literature, capital L literature. It also has these other angles that we are in an era where it is possible to have things that are new under the sun and even new under the stars. And as humankind's dreaming about these things, this, this actually is important. But at the same time, I think over the last 20 years, the people who write, the, write science fiction have gotten better and better about the about these issues of character and of literary uh, substance. And it's interesting to see when those collide, when you get stories where you begin to see that things are different and you begin to see how human nature could be affected by that. I'd like you to talk about a process that you call brain parasita parasitization yeah. of the reader. In other words, how you as a science fiction writer use the brains of your readers. Ah, so this this is not science fiction. This is metaphor, and it's really just an observation about the process of writing. And that is that up until now, uh, I think of all the human arts, writing, and I'm not just saying science fiction, I'm meaning fiction in general. Writing is an art form that, as its display device, uses the mind of the reader, uses the mind of the observer. Certainly visual arts do that also, but the wondrous thing about, to me, about writing is that you have these letters, you know, you 26 lowercase, 26 uppercase, some white space, some punctuation, and with that, a good writer can go in there and, in the mind of a willing reader, 
or a reader who has been fooled into being willing can use that reader's mind to make things that may not be in the mind of the writer. And I grew up with the notion that success in writing comes from having something to say. And actually, I still think that is a terribly important core to writing. But in the last 10 or 15 years, I've also realized that the best writers can actually write stuff that they have something to say, but they can actually use the abilities of their reader to make it even better. And so the very best or the very sneakiest of these writers can actually write things that could impress people that are much more intelligent and creative than the, than the writer himself or herself. This can be very intriguing. It really, really raises the importance of the notion of willing suspension of disbelief. If you can get a very smart person to willingly suspend their disbelief, then their imagination works for you. Once you've lost the willing suspension of disbelief, then if you're dealing with a reader who is smart, there's nothing you can say that, that is correct or that works. I've seen both of these reactions. And I think that one of the greatest pleasures is to actually be able to write something that actually has some substance and then to write it in such a way that a person who is smarter than you can actually imbue it with greater depth. And I think some, some writers are much better at that than, than others. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Werner Vinge. His new novel is Rainbow's End. Thank you for joining us, Werner. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.